Welcome to the Tech Sales Show, where we are dedicated to making you a better tech seller, sharing tried and true sales strategies and answering your questions weekly. Hey, hey, Bobby. What's up, Brian? We are on listener's choice number 25. Bobby, this is all about uh, the listener's questions, and we've got uh, answers and discussion points around this. So should be a fun episode. We've got a number of these that we've been collecting uh, over time. Um, so we're going to hit as many as we can for about, uh, let's say, 25 minutes. And then we will split off and do a second, maybe even a third episode based off this. Uh, we're just going to jump into the questions kind of one by one. Good stuff. Excellent. And please continue to sending them in. It's uh, it's always great to get these and uh, it's great content for the show and folks love to hear what's on your mind too. So uh, please don't hesitate to shoot us any questions that you might have. All right, Bobby, One, um, the first one we're going to start with is one that I get uh, often. Uh, I mean, because the folks that know you know your, your motivation goals, long-term goals for the flight school, but a lot of people that know me don't necessarily uh, know you in this context. So uh, what what is this flight school that you're talking about? What are these planes that you own, and and what's your goal here? Yeah, so uh, it's kind of a, a, a I guess a change of direction in, in the grand scheme of things, but it really is the same set of goals I've always had. I've always wanted to lead a business and run a business, but I've always been fascinated with the whole concept of flight, and quite frankly, was always kind of afraid of flying as well, and. Um, my wife never would let me fly for many different reasons. She didn't think it was safe and uh, probably thought it was too expensive and a bunch of other things. But when she was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2014 and we decided we were going to change a few things in our life. And um, one of those was she decided to let me fly. And uh, I guess it was 13, 2013. And I went to a flight school and took a flying lesson. And that, that said flight school happens to be the one that I own now. Um, it got long beyond the just taking flying lessons, but to me, it was it's kind of a passion that really was a good investment. At the same time, I can break down all that in another episode. But it, ultimately, it's a small business, probably generates anywhere from one point five to two million dollars a year. It's got a very cyclical business with daylight savings time and winter and low clouds, and we're in kind of the downtime of the year right now. But uh, I own. 10, 10 planes. They're all sing. Most of them are single engine trainer planes. It's what everybody learns to fly in. Even the air force and the Navy, they all learn in single engine trainers of some sort. Um, these are smaller single engine planes, but really that's what people are learning how to fly and go to the airlines. So we partner with express jet and Mesa airlines, and we're a feeder school for the future pilots that go to those regional airlines and fly for United express and, um, Delta's regional and American's regional carriers. And it's a lot of fun. I, I drive, I used to drive an hour, 10 minutes every day to work. I drive seven minutes to work. I go whenever I want to go. Um, I've got a big office. I've got a 15,000 square foot hangar, a 10,000 square foot office space. Um, Again, 10 planes. We also have four planes we manage for other people, so kind of like rental apartments. We manage them, we run them, we rent them, and we uh, keep them up, and we make some money for doing that, and their planes are flying, and they're making uh, quite a bit of money as well. And today we have 14 instructors that are teaching our students. Um, about 90 first 
first license type students that are currently training to get their private pilot's license and then many other levels up beyond that. And then, of course, I'm getting to fly too. So over the last five and a half years, six years now, I've achieved my private pilot's license, my instrument rating, my commercial license, and just took my multi-engine rating in January. And all that, well, the first few were not free, but the last few have been free, paid for by the business. Uh, and about to take an immersive five-week course that we're, we're building and creating at my flight school for flight instructors. And hopefully by the end of March, I'll be a flight instructor. I don't think I'll instruct daily, but uh, just another passionate thing that I'll do and hopefully pass, pass my aviation bug on to many, many people after me. And my biggest goal is to get you, Brian, into a single-engine <laughs> plane and fly you around. Uh, the world is a different place when you can go wherever you want to go. But it is truly a passion my daughter goes to UT. I think she's driven home twice in almost a year and a half now. And it's fun to be able to just go pick her up or go take her to dinner and come home and not fight the traffic. So it's more passion, but the business is real. It's it, it truly, to me now, I've wanted to retire before I was 50 for a long, long time. And this has kind of given me the chance to kind of retire, but I'm doing the tech sales lab stuff, the tech sales show stuff, and United Flight Systems, the Website is www.unitedflight.com if anyone wants to check it out. And um, it, it's a lot of fun to just go up there and hang out a few hours and then get to do whatever I want to with my family, uh, take my son, play golf, whatever. Uh, my, my stress level is much less than it used to be for sure. And and so you recently got um, certified on a different type of plane too. Is that right? It's a multi-engine. So now I can fly. I literally am legal to fly any in any multi-engine aircraft in the world that I have a type rating, what's called a type rating for. So I have I have mm-hmm. a rating today to fly single engine or multi engine, high performance piston prop planes um, that that don't have a turbocharger on them. So I would have to get a someone would have to teach me to fly with a turbocharger or some some higher level turbocharger, and then jets you have to get what's called a type rating. But if I flew with a pilot that was type rated and, and he taught me and, and by uh, sitting next to him then ultimately he's the one who signs that type rating and then I can fly any jet that I want to fly as well um, I have 400 hours today and if I had 1500 hours I could go be an airline pilot but that's not again that's not what I want to do is go be on call for uh, four days a week and fly jets around the world either but um, I might take some side gigs and fly some professional golfers here or there you never know what the future holds that's very cool that's very cool I think the um, key to this is I, there, there's a great book that I just read and we'll do a review at some point. It's called the algebra of happiness. It's sitting right next to me on my desk here and, and it's Scott Galloway. He's an early investor and now he's a teacher uh, in New York and uh, it's a great book. And it talks about how when you're young, everyone tells you to follow your passions and what he argues is that, and he's not the only one that argues this, this of course, is that, that, um, it's less about necessarily chasing your passion. It's more about finding the healthy intersection of doing something that you're good at, that you can get, you can be well compensated at, and that doesn't make you miserable. And that's kind of the first, you know, we'll say X number of years. And I think for us, that was, that was technology sales. I think, you know, I, I, I still do it actively. I, I really enjoy it. Um, but I, you know, I love uh, rental homes. I love what we do at tech sales lab. I love the tech sales show. I've got some other investments that I, that I have in other businesses as well. 
And I think that's what's been fruitful and interesting and fun about being in tech sales is that it's enabled us to do these types of things that I don't know about you, but I, I would not have had the capital uh, to make these kind of investments and to have these kind of rental homes and that kind of stuff uh, without tech sales. Of course not. And I think, you know, I, I, people, I think people, I don't know, they don't come right out and say it, but I think people are curious if whether I'm making the same amount of money or not, or if I'm happy from a compensation perspective. And I, I had this, I don't know, when I decided to pull the plug and leave, because I was going to be in tech sales and the fly school for a long time together. I really thought I would do both simultaneously for a long time and may still do that again sometime. But the opportunity for me to, to have fun and do what I want to do at 46 is very different than what it might be when I'm 66. So I'm taking the chance to do it now, and who knows when I might go back to work. But my wife's got a good job. She's got benefits. So that solves a lot of that that single young people may not have going for them. Mm-hmm. And then I am established. I mean, I've got, I got vehicles. i got a home. i got furniture. i got a lot of things that most people when they're in their 20s or 30s are buying and accumulating. So maybe I don't take – you know, this year, the last five years, I've taken a major golf trip with my buddies that was somewhere between six and $10,000 per person. And this year they're going to Scotland and Ireland and there's like a $20,000 couple trip. Okay. I'm not going on that trip this year, but I'm, I don't know that I would have spent my 15 or $20,000 five years ago on that trip either, mm-hmm. but I'm, I am sacrificing some of that to not change my lifestyle, meaning go out to dinner when I want, buy the bike or the golf clubs or do whatever I want to do. It's just a, it's a different pace, I guess, is kind of the way I look at it. Um, I am kind of hitting around about taking a pebble trip this summer. Like I can still do those things. I'm just being slower and smarter about my money. Um, and if I made a whole bunch more, all I think I would do is spend it. So I, I think I'm kind of, I think I'm proud of the fact that I really do believe I have enough and I'm not trying to chase something other, meaning a, a physical thing that I have to go spend a lot of time chasing at work and miss family time and all that. And I, I know I did that early on in my career, but um, I feel very happy with having what I have today. And to me, I really do believe it's enough. There's there's moments where I want more, but it's just it's not important that when I do think about those things that I do want that are more. And I could have them. I just would shorten my retirement span mm-hmm. or the amount of money that I would have, right? I mean, I'm still thinking about buying property and a new home, and it's not like I'm broke. It's just it's just, it's a different approach to the way I think about money than I did when I was getting a big paycheck. Now I'm putting it all into this investment that should run me and my wife out until we die. I mean, I shouldn't. I really shouldn't have to make money as long as the flight school keeps making pilots and they keep paying us decent amount of fly. Yeah, it's it's it sounds probably very similar to a a rental property in many ways, a very big rental property uh, in many ways because you have you also have this impact of uh, accumulating net worth over time that's not necessarily immediately liquid too. No, oh, for sure. And that's the beauty of a rental home is that I've had some of these now for over a decade, and uh, you can't touch it. You know, like it's it's different than after tax. Um, you know, after tax savings, it's, it's uh, tied up in property, which has helped me achieve a, you know, over 15% uh, return, you know, compounding annually on, on rental homes that, mm-hmm. um, that I just can't touch. And I love that. I can't touch them. It's like having, it's like a 401k or an, an IRA. Um, and that's my joke is the fly school is my new 401k. Cause mm-hmm. I don't have that through a company anymore, but 
I mean, I'm, I'm maxing out a 401k and then some, and then some, and then still making money. So I, it's, it's a great life for me. It's exactly what I think I wanted 20 years ago. And now I've got it. Um, and I think, I think too many people are chasing this dream of a bigger home. I'll say it, you know, keeping up with the Joneses down the street. And I just don't have that feeling at all anymore. Um, I just like the life that I got. I love it. I love it. Well, I'm glad we kicked off with that one. That was, uh, that's uh, good feedback and uh, good discussion. Now, if anyone knows of a consulting gig that would pay me a million dollars for <laughs> six hours of work, I would go do that work. But I'm just kidding. There that, is a number. That, 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 that would be a crazy number. But at the end of the day, I, I love driving to work seven minutes, and it is the most peaceful th- thing in the world to do when you don't have the stress of driving downtown. Yeah, and I can see that in you. So uh, that's great. That's fantastic. Okay, let's jump into um, the, our number two question here. Um, this uh, this person, this guy, has been with the company uh, not very long uh, and is responsible for displacing an incumbent vendor at one of their large prospects. So they've got a list of, they don't say, but I think it's between 20 and 30 prospects that they're looking to get into. That's part of their territory. And um, this one that's a you know, very high-quality prospect or high-quality target has a vendor and an incumbent that's been in there forever. They've been doing business in there forever. And if he can crack this one, then it, it could yield a lot of uh, a lot of revenue, a lot of commission for him. And this is a hard one, right? Because, I mean, I would assume that probably any of the accounts that you're trying to get into that you're not already in, they probably have some sort of incumbent. Maybe they've been married to that incumbent for a long period of time. And this was probably like when I think to early in my career, this was um, – what I faced on a day-to-day basis, I had a very large territory of medium-sized companies. And what I was looking to do is displace those companies and try to get, you know, either sell them, uh, you know, computer hardware, computer software, mostly Microsoft software. That was kind of my goal working at a reseller. And I think for me, the number one way I found to overcome this, and it was a long bet, but it paid off in many, many cases is I would find, I would, I would try to be, an expert in something and try to add value that the incumbent was probably sleeping on. And I've, I know I've shared this example over the years if we've done this pod, as we've done this podcast, but one of the number one ways I did this was Microsoft had released what was called this enterprise cow years ago. And it was kind of this, you know, thing that most resellers didn't know much about. Well, I just, I took the, I took the stuff home with me and I studied and studied and studied and understood every nuance, every piece about it, what was coming when it was coming, how it was going to be licensed, I just became a complete expert at it. And then I'd reach out to these prospective customers and I'd say, has your, has your reseller told you about this that's coming out? And nine times out of 10, it was no. And they would take the meeting just out of pure curiosity because I was kind of there with the cutting edge. They had made this big investment in Microsoft, but I'd, I'd kind of come to the table with some new insight uh, that they weren't aware of. And that was a way for me to kind of find a kink in the armor for the, for the incumbent that maybe they were sleeping or getting a little lazy with their customer. And that was my way in the door. I often tell people when this question comes up, what, what customer do you, do you manage today where you're selling stuff to them that you are a thousand percent sure you're not going to get kicked out one day or that you don't think your footprint's shrinking? I think I think when we're when we are the incumbent, we we are always afraid of getting kicked out, or we're always now we might have great relationships and great deals, but we, we come renewal time, we're all worried we're going to lose a piece and, and a part of our of our 
run rate that is going to impact our line, bottom line. And I think if you can put yourself in the incumbent shoes and ask those questions to yourself, like what would they be afraid of? What is the one thing they can't provide? What is the thing they're sleeping on, as you're saying? What is are they lazy? Do they don't do they not provide just general updates? Are they not talking about the market in general? They're not talking about the competitive landscape in general. And just not you can't do this all via an email bouncing back and forth between a customer. You gotta start trying to find that rhythm. That's what I think I've found that has always been successful for me is find a rhythm. Don't be pushy. Know that it's a long game, it's not the short sprint. You just have to keep asking what's going well, what's not going well. Feed them pieces of information. I had a rep that worked for me for many years who always used to say I would give a customer a gift. And that gift is more of the form of a white paper, a gardener report that came out that says something's happening or something's changing. And be that person. And then you you will you won't become a trusted advisor right off the bat, but you'll become someone that they believe in. Like what do you have mm-hmm. that you're you, you stand to lose by helping them, right? You don't have anything to lose. So you're gonna keep helping them and they appreciate that. And that turns into a relationship, which turns into a transaction at some point, and then could be the big ticket item one day. I think that's the the thing that you have to do is engage and engage consistently and create a raving prospect maybe instead of a raving fan because they, they will they will confide in you and you will ultimately get that shot to uh, compete and hopefully win. I, another thing I'd throw in here too, and this was um... – principle you helped me out with very early on in my sales career. And it was more to do with an internal meeting with uh, an executive that I was trying to get to be a mentor of mine. Uh, But I ended up using it a lot for customers and it was finding a reason to follow up and to have a dialogue with them. So let's say that I, they did accept that meeting for me to come out and explain this new program to them because I'd become an expert on it. Um, Yeah. I would, I would try to have some sort of like, relevant action come out of that meeting and something that they owed me and something that I owed them that would keep a dialogue going and it find a reason for us to kind of start to communicate. Cause then once to your point, Bobby, it, it, then it kind of, then you become somebody that they can kind of believe that if you say you're going to do something, you do it. And that man, that's sometimes that's 20%. Sometimes it's 50%, but it, it could, it could quite easily open up a, again, a kink in the armor for the, uh, the incumbent. No doubt. Uh, number two, number three, uh, we're dealing with a sponsor that there was, it was this a long email. So I'm kind of summarizing this, uh, really high level. So they're dealing with a sponsor on a big, long pursuit that is not at the right level. And how do you go over this person's head without making them mad? Um, and man, this is something in, in our business that we are in. This is like every day for us. Um, uh, yeah, you got somebody that's excited about your, your wares, whatever it is you're selling. Um, you you like working with them. They like working with you. They want to make it happen. They've never done a project this big before. Uh, but you know that they, they won't be able to sign that check or pull that trigger, that it's going to be a kind of a group decision at the end of the day. And how do you how do you kind of get over their head without making them mad? And ultimately, you're, you're trying to help them get it done. And, of course, it's helping you as well. Um, so the first thing that came to mind for me, one thing that we work on quite a bit, is having is talking to them about I always talk about it about not how it's helped me but how I've seen it work for other companies and I talk about former projects that were successful and one of the tactics when I talk about other customers that were successfully 
you know, bought our wares and, and the project went great is I talk about how having executive sponsorship in the evaluation through deployment, through go live, how that helped with end user adoption and how that was so beneficial for them. Because a lot of times when a company is buying new software or hardware, they are afraid of adoption. Like is what the vendor promising us going to come to fruition? You know, no matter what it is you're buying, there's a, there's a promise, there's a hope of it solving some sort of business problem. And, and there are cases and they are aware of these cases to where a successful product has been unsuccessful at a, at a company's business. So talking about it in terms of executive sponsorship can be a great way to help them encourage a, a chief operating officer, a CFO, somebody in the company that's higher than them to take part in this evaluation, which then gives you access to the people that actually may be writing the check on the deal. That's one tactic probably that I've, I've found to be successful over the years. How about you? Yeah, I think I think we have more access than we know, and I get the whole we don't want to cut the guy's throat and jump over mm-hmm. his head and blah, 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 but more often than not, I have found that you have the access. You don't have the sponsorship to get that person involved, meaning I might be working with you, Brian, but I don't have – and I know your boss, and I could talk to your boss, and I could ask your boss a question, but I really need you to elevate me to that point because it's really how this project's going to get momentum and continue to carry weight. I think you're – uh, internally probably keeping it at wraps and you don't have the authority. And then I need to make sure I'm helping you get successful internal sponsorship as well. So it's, it's more about getting you to understand the value of that sponsorship and that the end getting me to that elevated position. So normally I try to make it part of that early on work back plan reverse timeline. We've talked about that a bunch on other shows, but that we're by X date or by X milestone, you and I will talk to the executive sponsor, so-and-so. And just if that starts to, to creep, then I think I have the opportunity to call that out. I have the opportunity to hold them accountable that they agreed way back when and what's what would be preventing that. And maybe stop spending a lot of time on that deal if I have to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other part is I found success by saying, to a to a mid level manager that is my sponsor, to say, how you want to get this done? I want to help you get this done. I'm putting your success forward. Like what all has to happen internally, and just quiz them. And they're going to tell you that so and so is going to have to approve the project. And then I ask them, when do they think the right time is? How do they think that we can do that? And then I get the ability to kind of guide or push back like, well, you're that seems like we're waiting way to the last minute if we do X or Y that you're saying and just try to get them to 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 bend that timeline a little bit more to where I have the ability to do it. And then I guess the last thing I would do is if I feel like I'm really up against the timeline that's not meeting my needs or the project's needs to get done in a timely manner, I I would institute that executive that's coming to town. That if, if I don't get that executive in front of your executive, we don't have to be in the room, but if I don't get my executive in front of your executive, man, they're not going to let me do any more demos. They're not. They're, I'm going to take your loaner box back and have to end your trial license, blah, blah, blah. Make there be some – we've done the carrot, carrot, carrot for a long time. Now it's got to be stick. i gotta put the. I got to put the thread in there that I'm going to have to back out and pull away. And sometimes the partner can help with that, but – that, that those three things seem to be what has helped me get to that point when I've needed to get to that point to get a deal done. A couple other tactics that I found work here too is um, let's say that let's say that you're you're what you're really trying to do is build a relationship with that person that can write the check right because 
when it comes down to it at the end, just having a meeting with the person isn't necessarily going to help the deal. You want to have a, some sort of strategic or transactional relationship with that executive. And one way I've found for that to work is if they have been involving them in the demos or discussions or meetings is to find something individually to follow up with them on. It kind of goes back to our to our second question is, is how do you displace an incumbent? And it's by finding a reason to follow up is one of those tactics. And that's another one here too. So if you hear an executive that you think might uh, wield some influence in the account is find a reason to like one-on-one connect with that person. You'll, you'll almost never get your hand slapped. If you said, Hey, I saw, I, I know you asked a question about who our deployment partners were or whatever, right? Maybe, maybe it's, Hey, this is, this is kind of how we approach deployments. And that's set off in a one-off email and now you've established kind of a communication so that if you were to send an email to that person a month down the road, six months down the road, six days down the road, you've got some context to the relationship. You're not some random person reaching out for no good reason. Yeah, I found that executive events are good for that too. Like if you do ever mm-hmm. meet with them and say, what kind of events do you like to go to? I don't do events. Well, we do this duck hunt every year. We have this golf tournament or we do something, uh, a big big event in Vegas. Would you go over three years? Whatever that is. They'll ultimately say something that you can use as a reason to follow back up with. Hey, we just announced our dates for such and such. I wanted to let you know uh, I'll be on site Thursday talking to your team about Project X. Maybe I can swing by and hand deliver the invitation. It's just a way to not cut your sponsor's throat, but but get the get the bubbled up information to the to the guy that can or the girl that can write the check. Sounds good, Bobby. How about one more? Perfect. All right, how do I successfully move to a career in sales? Um, and I'm, I'm already kind of in a career. This person is in their mid-30s, they say here. So how do they, they've been uh, listening to the podcast. Um, they are not in technology sales. How do they get into technology sales? We'd be remiss, Bobby, to not mention what it is we also work on. That's part of uh, the Tech Sales Show. That's it's Tech Sales Lab, which is a, effectively a, program to help get uh, you educated if you're already in sales to help you up your game through the master programs if you're not in tech sales we've got programs that will help you get prepared to get into tech sales but i think a couple of things to to talk about here is uh, first things first you 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 need to be able to point to some sort of experience that you have in your current role that makes you well equipped for this or some sort of training that you're taking to get there and Bobby, I think a lot about your when you were a cop back in the early days and you were part of the Citrix. I'm probably going to butcher this, so please correct me here. But you were part of that Citrix program uh, that was putting terminals in vehicles, which kind of uniquely made you qualified to get into technology sales. It was kind of a uh, unique or circuitous route to it, but it was a it was a experience that you had that that made you kind of eligible uh, to get no into doubt. this no industry doubt. that's hard to get into. No doubt. And I, and I believe that people can formulate that all the time. Like uh, if you wanted to be a graphic designer, you could do a lot of self-study and become really good at Photoshop and learn how InDesign works and do a lot of things and, and get a little side hustle on Fiverr or whatever and have, have a year of experience before you ask for anything that was really a paying job. But I think we can do that with technology sales. I think we can do that with technology in general. There's a lot of books you can read. I, I think people just don't understand how many jobs there are out there in tech and tech sales that, that the doors are wide open for a hungry entry level person to come hit a home run. 
that that does mean maybe you take a step back in salary for six months. I mean, I left a law enforcement career where I had seven years on an eight-year vesting. My dad thought I was crazy. I can trust for him and everyone else out there that it worked out really good for me and my family. Um, but it was very lateral moving. like, it, And it looked like I was going to be stuck there forever. I got my first 12% raise in like literally four months. And it was and a huge bonus because we kind of got acquired. Like I made more liquid cash money in about six months than all the retirement combined. But none, no one could have seen that or guaranteed that. The the good great people will get paid off in tech in tech sales. So there's plenty of ways to formulate that you have that experience. Um, and then there's a lot of things you can do to to say that you're working on it. Toastmasters we mentioned a bunch of times. All kinds of development courses and things out there outside of tech sales lab, but obviously we're a little biased to what tech sales lab can do. If you really want to get into tech sales, um, it's just a, it's going to be a change and probably one for the like nine out of 10 things are going to be very positive. The one out of 10 could be a stickler, but I'm, I'm sure if you really want to do it, you can make it happen. And probably within the next six months. I know a lot of people want to be financially independent and there's, there's, three ways to solve it. That's on the revenue side, the expense side, or both. And I can tell you firsthand that it's a lot easier to become financially independent on the revenue side than it is on the expense side. You can much, no doubt. much more easily uh, solve that uh, net worth side of the equation that way. So yeah, it's a fruitful career. If you, of course, if you have any questions, uh, don't hesitate to reach out to Bobby or myself. And I want to thank everyone for sending these questions in. We've got many more to get to. Uh, So please do keep sending them in. And with that, Bobby, don't be average. Average sucks. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Tech Sales Show. Subscribe to our email list at www.techsaleshow.com and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Tech Sales Show. Until next week, average is the enemy.